Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones exteriones equal to... Arriba. Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Ewell Dr. Schoolboy. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and 1% wine. Where in the world are we, Brian? We are in London, our first episode recorded in London. Overlooking the city of London, twice as big, maybe more than Stockholm. Maybe more. Maybe, <laughs> maybe more. more. Maybe, maybe twenty more. times. We see some uh, some of the touristy sites in the in the distance on the thirtieth floor. It's a crisp fall day, perfect day to stay inside. <laughs> Sunday, <laughs> record some podcast. Uh, we were out yesterday though. We were out and about in the city having dinner with a bunch of other arbitration lawyers because we have no other friends, and why would we want to hang out with non-arbitration lawyers? Let's keep talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> One of them actually is going to join us and walk in the room soon to uh, to talk about the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal and maybe also Happy Fun Time. We haven't yeah. really told him, maybe we'll rope him in for the Happy Fun Time. I think we will. Uh, but we'll get back to that. Uh, first, we have to thank iReporter, of course, our favorite investigative service in the field of investment arbitration, uh, our sponsor for the third season. Any more people to thank while we're at it and just get it out of the way with? Um, no, thank you to the listeners. Well, we can say that at the dinner, we, uh, you know, the, the podcast came up. <laughs> as, as it always it, does. As it always does. Because we talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, have, we can thank uh, Callum Agnew, our, our researcher for this episode. Yeah, who, for this particular episode, turned around and research uh, like an hour and a half, because we didn't prepare at all. We just figured since we're in London, we might record and take advantage of that. And we emailed him, like, could you maybe do this and send it to us within 90 seconds? <laughs> we're, the, we're the bosses we hate, Joel. Yeah, they always get It's like your parents. They fuck you up. You, you become your parents eventually. It doesn't matter <laughs> how hard you try not to become your parents. You always end up with Yeah, I'm going to beat my kid. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. We love your parents. <laughs> love my parents. Hi, mom. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I have nothing. We have nothing else to say before we introduce the topics, except for sign up for the conference on the seventh oh. of November. That's it. I'm done. Yeah, good. Perfect. Our listeners will know by now. But our, we'll start with the topic that you have prepared mm. on issue conflicts, which is very interesting, and I th- we'll get back to this uh, obviously. But I think it's such an interesting topic, and we, we could devote easily an entire episode to, to the, just the issue conflict uh, topic, which I think is very topical now because of ACMEA, which keeps popping up. On a low count, I think there's like 50 pending cases involving ACMEA-related issues, intra-EU jurisdictional right. issues, which has led a bunch of arbitrators to step down because they have pending other cases as counsel or as arbitrators where AGMEA is an issue. So, 
it's hard to find people who aren't involved in Acmeja issues, right. which raises a bunch of discussion, a bunch of questions that is part of a general discussion having to do with when has an arbitrator disqualified him or herself because of opinions expressed on a matter that is expected to come up in an arbitration. Exactly. And it, it's come up before. I mean, this isn't a new topic, but I think now it has teeth. Yes, exactly. I, I'll, I'll give you a few examples of past practice as well. But the ACMEA thing is sort of the, the point of departure which, and why it's interesting to, to talk about now. And then the second topic with our guest, Jawad Ahmad, who is a, a friend of mine and who works here in London and kindly threw the dinner yesterday. Um, it's not I hope you noted by my silence that he's not a friend of mine, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but he's Danish. He, he always makes a big deal out of the fact that he left Denmark and doesn't really like Denmark. Right. And I've moved to Denmark. Right. So we have a special, strange uh, connection of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing. And then we'll end up and round off the episode. Ah, talk- we didn't tell the listeners what we will talk about with with what? Yeah, you did. No. Already. No. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal. Yes, the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal. And you'll be silent, obviously, because <laughs> you don't even know the name of the tribunal. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. Tell me how tomorrow. It is arguably less topical than issue conflicts because it's it's an old tribunal, still has a few pending cases, but it's something that's big in the world of arbitration. Everyone knows a little bit about it, but few people know a lot about it. So I've been meaning for a long time to talk about it because I think it's an interesting tribunal and Jawad used to work there. So he arguably has some insight or that remains to be seen, I guess. Arguably. <laughs> okay, and then the happy fun time topic, which we're all waiting for, mostly me, uh, about travel tips. Uh, since we are always in this profession, either on a train, plane, or automobile, uh, we've kind of perfected the art of traveling, or at least we think so. Uh, so we'll talk about airports, how to pack your suitcase, and all of the above. Great. Moving on then to issue conflicts. conflict in arbitration uh, as defined in a classic definition describes the existence of actual or apparent bias on the part of the arbitrator stemming from his or her previously expressed views on a question that goes to the very outcome of the case to be decided it denotes the arbitrator's relationship to the subject matter of the dispute and his or her perceived capacity to adjudicate with an open mind so an issue conflict arises where the arbitrator has a relationship to the subject as opposed to the parties or the council or right. something else. Which is interesting, and it is particularly interesting in investment law, and this is the usual caveat, especially when I'm hugging the microphone. <laughs> this is not going to be that much about commercial arbitration, it's going to be an investment arbitration episode. Yeah, <laughs> more or less, actually. <laughs> but in commercial arbitrations, the disputes are different. They're isolated ad hoc islands that are fact specific and depending on like contracts that look differently and you know each arbitration is a world of its own and that is of course true for investment cases as well but to be frank basically the same issues come up every time in investment arbitration right we have our handful of jurisdictional issues our handful of like substantive standards and our handful of quantum issues they come up with some variation and some like degree of difference of course but in every arbitration more or less what are you talking about joel what i do is groundbreaking every single time no it's not it's, it's a lot of copy pasting <laughs> <I know. laughs> like, uh, f-e-t is defined blah 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 and mm-hmm. like, cite the same cases over and over again 
<laughs> so that is why issue conflicts are sort of a live issue, uh, primarily in investment arbitration. And as we said initially, the ECMEA uh, story is a very good illustration of this. Yeah, We have so many pending cases now that may turn on whether or not the tribunal finds that uh, they don't have jurisdiction because of the ECJ's ECMEA decision supposedly taking away intra-EU uh, BIT disputes from tribunal jurisdiction. And I wouldn't want to be ICSID right now, considering that there's a bunch of annulment cases pending at ICSID, where ICSID has to constitute an annulment committee consisting yeah. of people with no relationship to the ECMI issue, but who still like know EU law or the matters right. in general law. And I don't think we should talk that much about like the different standards, because basically this is a subset of the general challenge topic that we've already had with impartiality and independence and whatnot. Uh, other than maybe to note that there might be a difference between ICSID and other contexts here, because in the language of the ICSID convention, uh, you require manifest lack of an ability to exercise independent judgment or something like that. Whereas many other rules, including I think the IBA guidelines on conflict of interest require a reasonable doubt of the independence or impartiality of the arbitrator. Right. So arguably the exit standard is higher than the other other ones out there. And I'm sure you've heard the different versions of the quote that is alternatively attributed to Rusty Park or John Paulson or maybe other people as well. It's like one of those you know, old sayings that could be Winston Churchill, it could also be Oscar Wilde, it could be Marie Curie, no one knows, that uh, the only uh, conflict-free arbitrator is somebody who lived on the moon for his or her entire life. <laughs> Wait, are you saying Marie Curie talked about arbitration? <laughs> no, 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 sorry, it was all conflict. I was saying it's like one of those, it's like a carpe diem like kind of quote. Yeah. yeah, it could be, you could attribute it to any random uh, senior historical figure, I'm not saying that right. Rusty Parking Impulse are historic <laughs> <laughs> No, but you're right, you have to like be on the moon in order to be free from all of these. Yeah, exactly, which is a tension of course, because parties want people with experience, but at a certain degree that experience might disqualify you right. from being on the tribunal. So I thought we would jump into the issue conflict issue um, and be a bit concrete, talking about some of the, the earlier cases. and. I'll start by really going out on thin ice here. I think the challenge I will now talk about might be the only, at least publicly known, successful challenge on the ground of issue conflict. Oh, okay. I think that's a good bottom line to, to keep in mind. It's very hard to succeed on issue conflict grounds. Right. As far as I know. There might be other cases, and I'm sure people will let us know. That was pre-ECMIA. Pre-ECMIA, it was difficult. Yeah, that's true, but we haven't really had any successful ECMIA challenges because yes. they've, they've stepped down. Yeah, exactly. Which sort of makes the whole discussion redundant because if you're challenged, most people actually step down. And I know a bunch of Three Crown lawyers have stepped down because Three Crown has counsel cases on ACMEA. Stanimir Alexandrov and Gary Bourne, I think, both have stepped down in ACMEA-related cases as well. Yeah. So uh, in many cases, the arbitrator in question just steps down. But it's still, I mean, we, we have to determine as a matter of law like what is the standard and when can you be successfully challenged if you want to stay on as an arbitrator, right. which has to be, I guess, the default that you're supposed to or you're allowed to. Uh, stay on? Yeah. Yeah. If you want that money. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta get that money. <laughs> so there's an uncertain case based on the bit between Mauritius and India. The case is called CC Devas versus India. 
And interestingly, as we've talked about before, and I've already flagged, this might be a future research topic for me, assuming I ever get my PhD. This was an uncertain case, so there's no institution administering, or there was no, sometimes there is, but it wasn't here. So there was an appointing authority designated, and that appointing authority, appointing authority was then ICJ president Peter Tomka, which is a whole different discussion once again when we talk <laughs> about conflicts. Like, I will refer our listeners to the discussion with Bruno, the ICJ correspondent, yeah. on, on this very podcast in second second season, because it's, of course, problematic if an arbitrator is challenged and the person deciding the challenge is basically another arbitrator, be it an ICJ judge or not. But any, any anyway, uh, the challenge in the CC Divas versus India case, there were two actually, because there were two arbitrators challenged. Francisco Orego Vicuña, who unfortunately passed away a few weeks yeah. ago, so may he rest in peace. And Mark Lalonde, who I think is Canadian. They were both challenged because they had allegedly uh, prejudged the meaning of the essential security clause in the applicable bit. Not one of the like mainstay standards of international law, uh, no. investment law, but a pretty frequent issue. And Lalonde had previously sat on two cases with a similar clause as the one in this India case. Vicuña sat on the same cases with Lalonde, ah. interestingly enough, and also wrote an article on the topic called Softening Necessity, which in which he pretty forcefully argued a particular position on right. the issue. And the challenge against Lalonde failed because Judge Tomka stated that merely expressing prior views on an issue in an arbitration does not result in a lack of impartiality or independence. But the challenge against Vicuña was allowed because he had stuck to his approach to interpreting essential security clauses through three arbitrations, so there was yet another case in addition to the ones, and in the academic article in question. So the difference, in other words, was the article. You, and I think here, somewhere, we have the accepted baseline. Expressing opinions in prior arbitrations, fine. Right. But expressing opinion in an academic context, maybe we're approaching something that might pose a problem and have you removed. I disagree. You do? Yeah. I, because no. it's like stifling academic debate. Oh! Now you're the free speech academic all of a sudden. <laughs> Joel and I had a long talk. <laughs> about uh, you know having free speech and democratic <laughs> access and arbitration. Yeah, but okay. So I think maybe here then we are, and obviously I left out all the details in what I just said. So there are more complications to this. But I think we are in agreement here on this because I, I really much, I very much feel the academic freedom aspect of this. Shouldn't we, by which I mean academics, uh, be able to write whatever we want uh, without having that thrown in our face? Or, alternatively, maybe it's completely reasonable that if you express your views in an academic context, you maybe should not expect to be regarded as impartial and asked to decide on those issues right. at a later stage. I think it's, you can see both sides of that. But uh, Were either of these appointed... Oh, it was Unsutral, so they were agreed on by the parties. I don't know, but yes, I would think so. Because that, I think that would be a different thing. Because obviously you're appointing an arbitrator who kind of sympathizes with your view of the world and yeah. your view of the facts. And then if the third arbitrator is agreed on by both parties, especially in this situation, then you kind of, 
how are you really how I, I don't know how that worked in practice in this specific case but but it's a challenge I would imagine as counsel as well when you're looking to appoint an arbitrator and you know the issues that will arise you're looking yeah. for somebody who you think might be sympathetic to your position and you do that by researching like prior cases and prior writings yeah and you still need a person who won't be challenged because they have expressed their views too firmly right basically and this is the, I've been on this before so I'm not going to spend too much time on this but I, I think I've, I've mentioned that a lot of writing in the field, I think, done by practitioners slash arbitrators is just boring because they don't <laughs> take, take a position. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And this is the reason. They're afraid of this type of challenge. So they just write something generic and, and sad. People asked us about this podcast. They're like, aren't you worried that you're going to take a position that you'll then be held against you in the future? And I was like, that presumes one thing, that people are actually listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, two things, and that we are potential arbitrators in the future, which right. is inc- inconceivable at this point. <laughs> That's true. But um, Stefan Schill, a German professor, wrote a piece about this case, which is pretty good, talking about like academic freedom. And I'm mentioning it because he contrasts the case with another case, which was an exit case, which, by the way, means that the co-arbitrators decide the challenge. Right. It's a default, which is interesting. What well, yet again? So there's a lot of like who decides the issue stuff here. That we yeah. Might, why would like, you set a precedent that could end up biting you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I don't know if one. I don't know. It might be collegially problematic as well. Like second guess. Could your, you imagine? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, petty. All right. <laughs> but this this other exit case, Urbaser versus Argentina, is interesting to us because the arbitrator in question who was challenged was Campbell McLaughlin, who we interviewed and indirectly asked about this because we interviewed him on the podcast if you recall in Sydney about the book that he co-wrote that we both work with uh, substantive principles of investment whatever arbitration yeah something like that which came out in a second edition which is a a good book and everything but they made a case when we interviewed them that they also take strong positions in the book Mm-hmm. And that ended up being a problem for Campbell McLachlan in this Urbaser versus Argentina case. So he was appointed by the respondent and he was challenged for lack of impartiality because of uh, the views he expressed in the book on MFN and the whole Maffizzini thing, you know, whether or not you can import procedural right. uh, stuff through an MFN clause. Which is quite, quite key. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's a binary, like either we yeah. have jurisdiction or we don't, and yeah. the MFN thing is... It, and it's also something that is discussed a lot, of course, in academic literature. And I can't recall exactly how, but I think he had a pretty strong preference that he expressed in the book. Uh, and he had also written an, another article, I think. Uh, anyway, he was challenged by the claimant, but it was rejected. Uh, and rightly so, Stefan Schill says, and I'm actually, I think, uh, ready to agree with Stefan Schill's assessment, because the co-arbitrator stressed the difference between the roles of a scholar on the one hand and an arbitrator on the other. Okay. Which is crucial. And they emphasized, and now I'm quoting Stefan Schiller, they emphasized Professor McLachlan's ability to reassess his views in light of novel arguments of the parties relating to the specific wording, circumstances, and negotiation history of right. the treaty clauses at issues. Right. And to cite the decision on the challenged, the requirement of independent and impartial judgment means that an arbitrator's previously adopted opinion 
whether published or not, shall not be of such force as to prevent the arbitrator from taking full account of the facts, circumstances, and arguments presented by the parties in the particular case. And that's what arbitrators do when they write awards. They take, they make decisions and say, this is because it was dependent on the facts of the case. And that's like the, the catch-all being like, I don't actually think this in a general exactly. sense. And this is actually the point that Schill makes. So it's good that you bring this up because Schill makes a distinction that I think is, is important between law and facts yeah. in this case. And it's often overlooked, I think, because legal determinations are, as you say, case-specific. So even if you've expressed a firm legal view in one case, that yeah. legal view might change in another case, depending on the nature of that case. Absolutely. It doesn't mean you just embrace wholesale a legal concept. Like, I think this about MFN. Right. It, of course, depends on the clause and what the parties argue and the fact of the case and yada, yada, yada. Exactly. But Schill then points out that facts are different. And he gives a good example uh, with the question of whether or not Argentina was in a state of, state of emergency in 2001, 2002, which has legal implications. Mm -hmm. But if you express an opinion on the facts, saying basically Argentina was in a state of emergency, you cannot be impartial uh, when you determine at a later stage in a case whether or not Argentina was in a state of emergency. Right. But the legal implications of that, it's a different thing. Right. Basically. So that was an important point that I think he made. And should we take this in the pro-investor, pro-state Well, that's direction? how it started, right? <laughs> that's how it originated. And that was the original like challenge was that this person's so pro-investor and it's so pro-state. And then people would raise challenges to arbitrators based on stances they took or, you know, how they interpreted the definition of investment to, to include everything and that was considered pro-investor and then people would actually appoint people because they were pro-investor or pro-state and that still happens. Those type of like monikers are following some people's names sometimes. And now, and this is what I was saying in the intro, that now it has a little bit of teeth because now you're actually, um, the conflict is now becoming harder you know, more substantive than what it is when you just had this fluffy pro-investor, pro-state um, delineation. So I think, I don't, I did not agree with the pro-investor, pro-state challenge. I, I thought that was just a very weak challenge. And I also think if you, this MFN thing, like all that's, if you're making these determinations on law in a case, I don't think you should be held liable for that or accountable for that to prevent you from doing something in the future but now when things are a little bit more concrete, I don't know. I think it's interesting because I, I see and recognize everything we discussed up until this point, that it all differs. But there's also for me a line somewhere, like even in the hypothetical scenario, just to take it to its logical conclusions, if you had 20 cases with the same legal standard, mm -hmm. different cases, different treaties, different parties, different facts, you still come down every time on like this is denial of justice or you know I have a broad understanding of how you can use MFN to get right. uh, more favorable arbitration procedures or whatever I, I can I can see the justification then for the party who feels like we won't get a fair chance at presenting our case because this person has already expressed opinion X 20 times in so many different scenarios yeah so what's what's to say that the 21st time is going to be any different because the facts are different right but you can you can extend this argument to like the very ends of of the world and say okay this person has a conservative background on economics and therefore they're going to not be impartial in the way they decide my case so like how are you really going to I mean I've you sit with your client and you kind of like go through the names of the arbitrators and you have all these like criteria of how you're going to pick one specific arbitrator and one is you know are they going to understand my case and if you have someone 
who's not going to understand your case, is that a challengeable offense? Because they didn't know that, you know, there was this crazy thing happening in Argentina. Like, or they're like, oh, that's not crisis. You want to see crisis? You should see my country. So then they're not going to decide your case in the way that you want to be decided. I mean, I, it can really be stretched. And that's why I think that whole fluffy stuff needs to like be snapped back into like very concrete examples where someone says, you know, um, where you have like a Philip Morris case where it says, you know, the definition of expropriation, like this is how it's structured in my mind. And then you have, okay, well, this person, you know, obviously thinks one way or the other, but again, it's not challengeable in my opinion. <laughs> it's challengeable, but it might not be successful. Right. It shouldn't be. You can always challenge. Right. Unfortunately. And people do. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's sort of the big picture thing to take a step back here. I think that I think we want as a community to have this cross fertilization between academics and arbitrators and people expressing themselves generally that's good it fosters debate and it sort of drives development of the law basically we shouldn't punish people for for speaking out but yet again it's always the parties who pay and it's it's their right to have an impartial person hearing the case right but we're not going to just have three nuns sitting on the tribunal and be like you know, now we we've got impartiality. Three people from the moon. You're taking people from context, from experiences, from jurisdictions that aren't your own. That is going to be imported into the case. And I think in like the arbitrator community uh, that we obviously are not really a part of, like the within the deliberations or like when arbitrators talk to each other. I think this is this annoys a lot of them. Because it, to them, I think it's almost an attack on their uh, ability to exercise exactly. independent judgment. Like, exactly. Th- that was one case. This is another case. Obviously, I'll like, give it a fresh look right. and, and use my best judgment. It's just a little bit almost condescending to say, like, because you wrote an article. You don't know how to differentiate between yeah. the two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, again, at the other end, there's a bunch of people who say that it's, I don't know, of, of course they are going to be conflicted. Right. Because they are just people, and if they've expressed a strong view, they're going to stick to that view. Yeah, we're opinionated lawyers. Like, what do you think is going to happen? So, is that it maybe for our issue conflict? I I have some more things, but I think maybe we should... Did we do something on, on challenges against arbitrators, or did we just talk about it? I don't think we did, maybe. I think... No, I don't think we did. Maybe we should do that. For a future topic, then, because that it, it's a like who decides it and what what is the standard, and I because I just worked on the assumption that we had already, but now come to think of it, maybe we haven't really covered that particular ground, right? Because that is interesting, and it is even more so now with the ECMEA stuff popping up, because then I guess, well, I mean, you have the exit versus non-exit and the ECT versus bit, but by and large, it is the exact same issue. Yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about is that this whole ACMEA thing is not only the challenge to arbitrators, but now you have firm issue conflicts, right? So now a firm is either one side of ACMEA or the other, and that gets imported to the rest of the firm. I hadn't thought about that. It's like the, you have the investor firms and the state firms yeah. as well. This is like just a, a deeper level of that thing. Exactly. Oh, I hadn't thought about issue. It's not really conflict, like issue profiles for firms. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's not a conflict, but it... it uh, clients that's, will definitely think it's a conflict. You think? Yeah, yeah, they won't hire you. Really? Yeah. Well, first, if you don't have experience representing a state, a state's not going to hire yeah, you. Yeah, but in this in this hypothetical but particular like me scenario, yeah. if, if if a firm has had two cases like arguing the EU law line, the EU Commission line, you think they'll they won't get uh, an investor? I, I don't gig? think so. 
Interesting. If if the if the investor is like sophisticated enough to know yeah. that that exists, yeah, I mean, assuming that. I, why would you? I mean, because of all the reasons we just gave. Either we're just lawyers. lawyers. Yeah, exactly. The cases are different. We just, and I mean, it's different for counsel because you never express your own opinion. Well, counsel, that's an interesting point because counsel sometimes gets held accountable for what they said in other scenarios in really? previous arbitrations. Oh. That you're sitting there advocating this like ACMEA thing and then you're going in the next room and be like, I actually think this. Can you hold that counsel accountable for what they said in a prior arbitration? Of course not. Why? Because we're, you, our lawyers. Well, then you're a liar. That's the problem. No, it's not. You're advocating someone else's position. It's the same in like every kind of lawyer. If you're in the criminal proceedings in a domestic jurisdiction somewhere, one day you argue X and one the other day you argue Y, depending on what your client instructs you to do. What about the truth, George? <laughs> but we've given up on that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, I think that people have done that. Yeah, I, I, I have this sense as well, but not in a formalized context. Or, right? like, for example, a, a, you know, a council, yeah, yeah, a council has written a paper on on something, and then in the arbitration, they're actually arguing something else. They yeah, that would be the better uh, issue conflict analogy okay. if you've expressed an opinion as an individual. Yeah. Because there are also, of course, councils who are, like, academics or write articles on the side. Most of them actually yeah. do that. And that's a good point. Hmm. Maybe a separate segment. On council conflict. Council, yeah, seriously. It's interesting. Is that why you didn't express a strong opinion on the stay of enforcement in our exit review article? <laughs> it did get a little like, well, everything's possible. Yeah, oh, that was my bad. I'm the academic. I'm supposed to be taking the strong positions. No, but we took a position at the end, which was basically that... Clarification is needed. Clarification is needed, is and the, please reform. The anti-position. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay, should we see if we can find Jawad somewhere and uh, move into more history? Let's do it. Donk. Donk. Welcome to Brian's office, Jawad. Thank you. I feel very uncomfortable here, actually. It's yeah. Winston Strong. So. I feel very comfortable here. This is part of my MO now. I crashed the law firms where Brian work and, <laughs> and hang out. <laughs> he has to go through the same conflict checks that I do. Really? I didn't know that. No, no, no. Oh, jeez. Okay. So we thought we would talk to you about the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal, which is a huge topic and almost a mean thing to invite you on to talk about because it's so big. But I think it's something that a lot of people are interested in and something you're supposed to know about as part of like general arbitration, education, but a lot of people stop at learning the name. Ryan actually just mispronounced the name before you walked into I the switched. Room. I ran in U.S. Ha! <laughs> wow. But that's it's sort of, I mean, that's not on you. That's, I think, it's, it's a, a good illustration. On. It's a little on me. <laughs> a little, but you're not alone. That's the point. And it's good to have you here. And you are now uh, an associate at May Brown, but you used to work at the Iran United States Claims Tribunal as a what? A clerk? Um, that's correct. The official title is legal advisor. And in my case, I was the legal advisor to Charles N. Brower, uh, who's the, uh, well, no longer, but at the time was the U.S. appointed arbitrator to the tribunal. Oh, yeah, and a well-known arbitration name. As, by the way, I just made a list before you, you came here of the people that I know of who worked either at or pleaded before the Iranian States Claims Tribunal, all the prominent arbitration people who spent time there during their formative parts of their career, mm. you included. Thank you. And the list is so, so, so long. It never ends. Doug Bishop, Charlie Brower, Karl-Heinz Buchstegel, David Caron, Veja Heiskanen, Mark Klodfelter, Jose Alvarez, James Crawford, Bridget Stern, Jeremy Sharp, Lucy Reed. It goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, to be honest, the that 
was not new to me when I joined. Um, many um, people reminded me exactly of that list. And in fact, when I just accepted, I'd actually reached out to a few of them. And everyone sort of uh, were very much um, well, pleased and happy and, of course, uh, recounted their stories and their experiences at the tribunal. It's a home to a lot of, as you say, well-known arbitrators, uh, arbitrators and practitioners, even academics. Um, I think it's it's uh, it's it's a very you know every time I talk to someone about it it's a sort of it's a very interesting tribunal interesting experience very sui generis very you know incredibly odd um, but fascinating at the same time I mean I'm happy to sort of tell you a bit about how it came to be yeah perfect and, I, I was uh, hoping we would start there because it, as sure. you say it is a very special thing that doesn't fit nicely into what we know in like the modern terms of investment arbitration, commercial arbitration, permanent courts, it's somewhere in between. It's neither and all of those at the same time. Mm. And it's hard to talk about it. I want to talk about like you, your work there and what it was like and everything. But in order to do that, maybe we should start with like, what what is it? Sure. Beginning. Yeah, so I think it helps to put the origin of the tribunal in context. Uh, many people don't know this, but well, they probably do, but um, our generation may not uh, appreciate it as much. But the United States and Iran actually enjoyed a very enriching and um, warm economic relationship for many, right. many I, years. I read some statement from Jimmy Carter in right. the mid-70s saying, like, Iran is uh, an exception to an otherwise unruly region, the only stable regime we can trust. Exactly. I mean, it, it was very much, you know, one sort of best friend type of relationship. Um, by the, for instance, by um, by nineteen seventy, by by the end of the seventies, there was, well, many um, at that point the whole situation erupted. But leading up to the revolution, the relationship uh, between the U.S. and Iran was quite uh, remarkable. Almost there were thousands of American personnel located in Iran. Many businesses were uh, set up shop there. Iranian Americans were based out of there. People had. Um, all sorts of uh, personal reasons to be in the country. There was even, um, I remember um, reading somewhere that, um, um, you know, there was, I think, if you ever worked in oil and gas in the 70s, you had at one point had to have been in Iran in connection with that work. And even on a personal front, my father, um, who was from, is from Pakistan, he said that, yeah, you know, the best clubs were in Tehran in the 70s. I mean, this is a very modern, Wish I was there. Yeah, it was, you know, they had, uh, it was a very different place. So with that context, it all sort of went bellied up, uh, belly up at one point towards, um, there was a growing movement of um, um, the, the revolution. And at that point, I think towards 1979, 78, things were getting quite sour and there were massive amount of demonstrations against the, you know, against U.S. personnel and companies in Iran. Uh, and there was significant efforts to overthrow the Shah. But I think uh, situ the situation eventually was at, uh, at fever pitch when um, essentially demonstrators had seized the U.S. Embassy, and this was on the 4th of November 1979. And this was at the time Car the Carter administration was in power. And in uh, just over 10 days, he imposed essentially economic sanctions against Iran immediately uh, and uh, Iranian assets in the United States and Iranian assets worldwide at least within the grips of American financial institutions were freezed 
uh, and the value was at that time you know eight billion US dollars quite a lot if you just sort of imagine that and as a result because of the sort of strong commercial ties between Iranian and American businesses and uh, state-owned entities there was a lot of contracts that have res as a result of that sanction and seizure uh, and the sort of situation on the ground were getting canceled or were sort of being delayed and it was just complete havoc and frustration. So as a result, many judicial attachment proceedings were commenced in the United States against Iranian assets. So there was a whole series of legal proceedings, just thousands of them stacked up in various parts of the United States. Um, and then essentially you had um, um, heavy negotiations. I mean, I'm fast pacing here just so to explain how things go, but uh, heavy negotiations that were essentially uh, intermediate um, or facilitated by uh, Algeria. And it's quite interesting because the United States was in a particular, it was in a predicament. On the one hand, they wanted to release these hostages. And should we just pause here and sure. repeat what we said before, go watch Argo, the movie, oh, yeah. which is like right. the, the, the sexy version of the background story as well that has nothing to do with the tribunal. No, of gives course you a good not. insight in a dramatic way into yeah, the, I mean, many the hostage of us, situation. Many of us that saw it were a bit disappointed. Where, where is the tribunal? Why is it not sure <laughs> this movie? Why is this movie not about the Iran and United States? I know, I mean, it's, it could make for a great uh, Hollywood picture, but but it's, um, it's quite interesting. The negotiations were um, mediated by Algeria and the United States did not want to pay a ransom for the hostages. And Iran were essentially suffering with the economic sanctions and the thousands of legal proceedings hanging over their head in the United States. All their assets were froze, uh, freezed. And at this point, there was sort of a, you know, many, I think over, I think the hostage crisis lasted 444 days. Wow. So quite many, almost over a year. So there was... Um, Tensions were very much high, and the way it worked was that the, the U.S. didn't want to essentially get rid of um, these judicial proceedings because they, they're American claimants, so the U.S. citizens and entities had legitimate claims against Iran because of the various actions that the state had taken against those businesses leading up to the revolution the overthrow of the Shah. And uh, so the U.S. didn't want to frustrate those uh, claims and wanted to somehow ensure that these claims could be resolved in some um, alternative dispute resolution form. And in exchange, Iran also didn't want to uh, be administering thousands of these claims in the United States. And uh, essentially, this led to the Algiers Accord. Uh, in which the United States agreed to um, lift the sanctions, um, place the frozen assets, um, a portion of it at least, into an escrow account, which would be used to pay off uh, claims um, that were brought and success successfully brought against Iran uh, before, which is the third thing they also did, um, the Iranian Claims Tribunal. And it was established in The Hague, um, and uh, which was seen at that point, and still is very much, they have very much a neutral territory. And the tribunal in those early days was uh, housed at the Peace Palace. And um, just to give you sort of an, a structural overview of how this uh, tribunal was set up, yeah. you essentially had nine judges. 
slash uh, arbitrators slash or, arbitrators correct. officially judges i guess yeah well i mean it's it's a interesting academic debate about that but it's a, i think it's fair to say that there are certainly arbitrators and um, nine arbitrators that um, three of which are uh, appointed by iran three of which that are appointed by the united states and then uh, the remaining three are um, appointed by the both sides of um, the party representing the states. And they were Swedish initially, at least Were they two term appointments or were these lifetime positions? No, it wasn't. Uh, I believe it was, uh, it's a good question if, I, if I'm correct and I might be proven wrong on this, but I believe that off, they weren't necessarily term appointments because that could be used as some sort of an advantage to sort of uh, delay a case, uh, uh. to sort of disrupt situations. I think for all in purposes, it was there as long as you could do your job and you were not otherwise incapacitated. Um, so then uh, these three remaining could not be the national advisor of the state parties. Uh, typically, as you said, Joel, it was you know, there were Swedish, uh, Germans, uh, civil law background. Um, and uh, the, the tribunal itself had endorsed at that time um, the 1976 unsatural arbitration rules, which um, many say was the testing ground for the rules. And a lot of the uh, the tribunal, I should say, had modified it a bit to tailor it for a specific purpose. But interestingly, it, it served as a very uh, useful uh, source for what eventually became um, the 2010 amendments in the unsatural arbitration rules. and. Uh, and, and the like. So it's it's um that's, that's a good point, and I think the context in which it usually comes up to like in the general arbitration context, because this was of course before there was investment arbitration. It was before the unsatural rules had ever been tested really in commercial cases as well. Still, as you said, they're from 1976. It was right. very much like the early days of international arbitration as we know it. So they were basically like making things up the tribunal as they went along with big consequences for subsequent developments. Correct. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of things that were played out during the tribunal's history that uh, I think no one envisioned, including uh, the drafters of the 1976 rules. Um, but I guess the other aspects of the, of the tribunal that's particularly interesting, just on some physical location, it was a very interesting institution and still is. As I mentioned, it was in the Peace Palace, but eventually, to get away from the public eye it uh, and to sort of avoid paparazzi because of the sort of amount of attention it would receive, uh, they relocated the, um, the headquarters or the office, the tribunal, essentially, in a four-story hotel about a mile away from the Peace Palace. And it's actually, you know, you could be driving down the road and not notice the tribunal. Um, the very opposite of the Peace Palace. Exactly. Right. It's very, in, very much in your face. You know, the Peace Palace is visible. You just sort of look any direction. I'm sure you'll be able to spot it one way. Um, but the tribunal wanted to be a bit away from the public eye. And, and it's, it's, it's actually a beautiful house, well, beautiful hotel, uh, nestled in a sort of nice neighborhood. There's trees around. It's beautiful during the fall. So it's, um, you know, but it says a lot about what type of institution this is. This is a, and the place is incredibly small in proportion to the work that they're doing or have done historically and then now still doing. Um, Can we uh, just stay on that for a while? Because sure. there were, I think there was like a cutoff date a few years in and somewhere right. in 1980-something. You couldn't file any new cases, but thousands of cases were filed and most of them resolved like in the 1980s. But well, a bunch of cases... 
went on and a few of them are still pending because you were there only a few years ago. Right. So let's talk about the cases and the distinctions there because there was a cutoff point uh, after which no U.S. claimant could bring a case against Iran. After that, I mean, those are so that let me start a bit more basic. There are two types, essentially two types of cases that can come. A claim by a private entity of a contracting state party, such as the Iran, wasn't the case, but the U.S., and another state. So that's one type of case. The other type of cases that could come were between the contracting state parties um, concerning the, a treaty interpretation issue or something, uh, or actual military, in this case, the military contract entered into between the United States and Iran. So there are uh, those two main types of cases. The private U.S. claimant-based cases, there was a cutoff point. And that was a, essentially the glory days of the Iran-U.S. claims tribunal because you had thousands. I think between, um, in the first year, I think it was, there was a um, about over 100, I think within two years, there was about 111 awards written. I mean, that's wow. quite insane. And it's like mass claims almost, and they're all pretty very much com complicated, substantively and procedurally. <laughs> exactly, and I would actually, I'd like to come back on the mass claims because it was something I thought about while coming over here, but we can talk about it later. But what's interesting is this, that, you know, if everyone, if anyone purchases the full volume of awards from the Iranian Claims Tribunal, you can see that for each year, it just sort of stacks up law. You have many books in the first couple of years, and then it thins out towards the end. Yeah, maybe one volume for the whole five years, last five years or something, covering just a couple of awards that, that was in there. So, um, essentially, that's um, that is pretty much one main sort of. Uh, yeah, I think that's sort of a good summary of what the tribunal, how it began, or anything. But uh, and how did you get involved? Like, was there just a application process, and you were just like signed up? Well, I mean, I I had a I knew Judge Brower before for a while I mean I think I knew him three years before I actually joined the tribunal um, someone that I had known uh, in the arbitration community had clerked with him before and mentioned well you know you just write him an email and then take it from there wow okay. and I would imagine there are more of you you said it was a small place but there are nine uh, judges slash arbitrators and uh, I'm guessing both states also had like agents there permanently is that sort of the the core of the people who are there right the so nine judges with staff and correct and the then nine judges uh, you have staff of course uh, for each of the contracting state parties on secretarial level to other aspects of administration also state agents so the individuals that would um, Essentially, when there would be a resignation or a vacancy on the tribunal, those two, those agents would get together and make sort of decisions on what happens next. In particular, if that individual who resigns or is challenged is um, is a, one of the third country arbitrators. Mm. And it, it, it's interesting because it's not any two random states in this scenario. It's two states that. I guess at no point really had any formal diplomatic connections. And right. I mean, there are dagger points in yeah. general. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's um, it's 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 quite interesting because it's a very historically there's a lot of reasons to think that this is sort of such a acrimonious relationship. But my time there, I mean, I was had a great, good relationship with the legal advisors for the Iranian judges, even with the Iranian judges themselves. They were all very nice. 
very uh, respectful, very humble. Um, of course, um, you know, uh, the work is the work, but uh, as an, on an individual level, no one... It's a collegial It's very collegial. We had tribunal outings. They would, you know, we would go for a restaurant. We would go on trips to a museum together with the whole tribunal. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, a good, trips. it's a good case for like arbitration, exactly. generally as well. Yeah, like, yeah, even right. in this environment, mistakes that are really like at each other's throat Correct. politically, you can Trying still solve disputes. Right. I mean, it's, it's a lot more harmonious than people... Know, friendly than than people would may believe. I yeah, mean, but uh, and I, I'm guessing, or at least that might be from my Swedish uh, perspective, <laughs> because there, there is this infamous story from the mid 80s when one of the Swedish neutral judges was physically assaulted by Judge Mangard. Yes, yes, exactly, and and eventually resigned from the tribunal, and that was I guess like the the low point in tribunal's <laughs> right. history, I mean, and I think it, that stuck with a lot of people, uh, even though that was you know, 25 years ago. Right. I mean, that's an interesting, I mean, a uh, very interesting situation uh, or unfortunate event that happened. Um, just to give you some context, that was in 1984. And this was, uh, I think, on this, in September 1984, where Judge Mangar was going for a full tribunal administrative meeting. And um, I think he was then apprehended by Judge uh, Kashani and... Um, Safe, I think, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, who essentially wanted him out. And this was physically. <laughs> physically wanted to kick him out of the building. And this was in connection with, uh, up until that point, the, um, there were many, all sort, many sorts of resignations, withdrawals, and non participation um, from Iranian judges and the tribunal. Um, was rendering decisions on what to do on an administrative front when a judge is not present and there needs to be an award issued or there needs to be hearings. And I'll just put a footnote there that, you know, one of the reasons why the Iranians Claims Tribunal is so renowned is that it kind of set the precedent on a lot of things that on day-to-day -day arbitration we take for granted. So what do you do when there is an unauthorized absence of a, of a party-appointed arbitrator? Does the show go on or not? And these are the types of things that the Iranian Claims Tribunal came out with sort of uh, sort of uh, broad statements, yes, you do, because they interpreted the rules, they interpreted the accords, they interpreted the purposes of, of what the tribunal was about and said, you must, because you have a duty towards the parties before you. So with that footnote, um, there was a lot of resistance by uh, certain Iranian judges of the behavior of, uh, of Judge Mangard, and um, they wanted him out. And... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll happily read something uh, from the New York Times um, where Judge Kashani said, uh, this is a New York Times article that was published in September 7th, 1984. Quote, if Mangard ever dares to enter the tribunal chamber again, either his corpse or my corpse will leave it rolling down the stairs. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, I haven't heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, my God. And, of course, uh, there was a big debate on what is the appropriate conduct of an arbitrator. Um, yes, because that doesn't ring up no, collegiality does exactly. It does not. <laughs> and, um, you know, there are some interesting... Going back to the incident, when um, when Mangar was being pushed, essentially, and dragged by his necktie by Judge Kashani, there were, I won't name them, but there were very famous, now famous, uh, arbitrators that were involved in trying to break up the fight. And... Um, you know, they have their own accounts of how this stuff was going down. And at that point, many of them kept diary journals of what happened. Old school. Old school style. So very interesting. Um, and um, 
I have, of course, Mangard had resigned uh, before that. Kashani had been challenged by the United States in the late 1984 after the incident. So there was a lot of, um, yeah, that was not the high, best point of the tribe. But what was years. the core issue? Why were they fighting? Well, it connect. It was allegations that the third party arbitrators were rendering decisions that were not in, uh, at least oh, according okay. to Iran, in favor of them, and also how they were proceeding with the cases, despite that an Iranian judge was not present uh, in those hearings, and even if that if those reasons were personal or somewhat of a strategic ploy right. to derail the cases to prevent it from ever going to. And I think, if I may, without your. Uh, uh, insight of course but I, I've, I've read as an outside observer and I think that's an understandable point as well that Iran early 1980s there were not a lot of arbitration experts in the country they they didn't have sort of the, the manpower or the resources or the, or the knowledge that maybe the US side did and I would imagine it's a bit frustrating and it's also like a post-revolutionary state trying to figure out all the other issues that come with the revolution mm -hmm. uh, and trying to like keep up where you have uh, very like experienced U.S. both arbitrators and and counsel on the other side, I would imagine it's a tricky situation to mm -hmm. navigate as as the Iranian side. Yeah, I mean it's um, let's not make a mistake. This was not simply a tribunal that was resolving cases. There was a political background to everything. There was uh, these two nations were at dagger points. The um, the relationship was acrimonious. It was good at times, not good at times, that's how it's been. But I guess the testament is that it's still standing and there still is a source of dialogue and discussion between them. And even in my time there, I mean, the, the people were very nice and they joked around, they, they laughed. I mean, there were visible encounters of both Iranian judges and American judges uh, being very friendly to each other. So, Were, were the other legal advisors the same like level of experience as you? Um, well, it's interesting, at least my experience, I mean, uh, the legal advisors were very competent from the Iranian side, very competent. PhD, LLMs had written books, one of them had translated um, Grotius's volume into Persian. I mean, oh, wow. these are very experienced individuals, so uh, frankly quite intimidating and uh, in, on an intellectual front, but uh, very nice, very hospitable, humble people. Um, and what's your, I mean, is the role to just like any other judicial clerk, just like brief your judge and... Exactly. I mean, so the, the role as a legal advisor is, you know, first and foremost, you do what your judge tells you to do. Um, and uh, you're there, of course, to facilitate uh, the, the judge's work in um, either preparation of the, for a hearing in the form of a bench memorandum. It could also be in preparation for tribunal deliberations, which... Legal advisors were and are still entitled to attend in the Iranian Claims Tribunal. Uh, and my experience um, was very much, uh, you know, it's, it's a different generation. So you, met, you read out those individuals who had been there who were very prominent and well-respected arbitrators who saw through hearings, saw through cases, and the early cases followed by United States claimants. Uh, in my case, it was the two few state-to-state -state cases between the two states and I did not see a hearing. I was predominantly involved in the deliberations and so my job was predominantly to sort of prepare uh, my judge. How many cases are still 
pending. You know, it's, <sighs> I might it's be wrong, few, but like, it's you know less than five. I mean, it's yeah. very few. No, well, I mean, it's, this happened to be incredibly big. <laughs> yes, I mean it's open record that the B one case is moving forward, and it's it's one of the most complex cases that the tribunal has ever faced. Yeah, or so, anybody has ever faced. Go out with the bang. Yeah, it's huge, very complex, incredibly. Um, contentious and uh, the amount is also quite significant it's uh, on that note can I ask you maybe as a final question from mm-hmm. us at least uh, sort of tying a few things together sure it, it doesn't get a lot of general media attention nowadays I mean you were reading out quotes from the New York Times it seemed like in the 1980s this was like mm-hmm. part of the general geopolitical discussion involving the mm-hmm. US and Iran and obviously we know that today that generally is still very much in the news, the relationship right. between the U.S. and Iran, but you rarely hear about the tribunal in that context. Do you know, have any idea why this is sort of flying under the radar? You wouldn't hear President Trump referencing the tribunal, even if there are like pending cases involving billions of dollars. feels like it should be justified to include it in like the general discussion on the relationship between the two states. Um, personally, um, I mean, I have my views, but uh, I can't speak for the tribunal, but I would imagine that to some extent it and this is my personal view, is I believe that it wants it that way. It doesn't want to over-politicize the event. It's got a job to do. It's trying to finish it. Having media intervention would just perhaps complicate the situation. Um, yes, of course, it's not uh, you know, publicized as much. And there, there are people that hold the view that uh, it's no longer interesting because it's been in existence for so long and it's so slow and it's so... Solving an old problem. Exactly. That should have been resolved many years ago. I mean, this it was, you know, it's been going on for almost 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> and there are um, people who spent many, many, many years and are still there for, for that purpose. So that that is a one view that people think that that's why we don't want to perhaps talk yeah, about it so much anymore. We, as arbitration lawyers, we want to Stay out of the limelight, just exactly. solve the world's problems without Precisely. the world. You know how we have the Appleclad decision, which was a very, some would say, successful attempt of aggregating many claimants, many claims in one exit case. And I think that, you know, it just occurred to me that to some extent the Iranian claim chart, you know, may have been there first, and I'll be proven wrong if, if someone is listening, uh, if I'm wrong, but. Um, I, because you had thousands of claims against Iran brought in the United States, and they essentially took that and they unified it under the Iranian Claims Tribunal. Um, and that goes to sort of a testament to how effective arbitration could be, that instead of fighting thousands of cases, let's just centralize it in one location and have it in one place. Um, that was at least the impetus behind the Avocat decision as well. Look, it's in your interest, X state, to... Uh, have this in one location instead of yeah, rather one it. exit claim than forty thousand exactly. exit claims. <laughs> exactly, and and you know, in the current time of just uh, complaints against par- well, multiple proceedings against the state arising from the same measure, um, the Iranian claims tribunal just gave me the idea that actually, in effect, they had done the same. They had resolved it by creating the tribunal. A precursor in many ways. Yeah, and that's you know, it's just one of many things that it's very known for. Um, What's very interesting, uh, you know, a lot of people forget that uh, this was at a time when the, uh, the International Court of Justice was uh, also having cases, but just not as many. So at the Iranian, the Iranian Claims Tribunal in the 80s was the only game in town that was pumping out jurisprudence on um, 
expropriation, uh, dual nationality on jurisdiction, DCF <laughs> analysis on discount <laughs> cash flow. I mean, really dry and fascinating issues of international law and also just treaty interpretation. How do you interpret the treaty? Yeah. And applying the VCLT rules to the treaty. I mean, just this type of approach to um, what we nowadays do day in, day out in investment treaty arbitration was very much first tested at the Iranian claims tribunal days. So it's very interesting. That's a great add-on. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So thank you very much for this, Jawad. What do you say we uh, crack open a, uh, a beer or two and move on to a happy fun time discussion instead? Sure. Will you join us? Yes, I will. All right. Great. Sure. <laughs> preface the whole thing, this entire discussion, by saying uh, we have climate change, flights are bad, we all feel bad for this, uh, you should take the train, you shouldn't fly, in 20 years there will be no more flights and that's our fault because we're, we're killing the planet and we're all going to die pretty soon. So what are we going to do, teleport? Uh, no, we're going to talk about your best flight tips and <laughs> how to do it, because <laughs> we're still <laughs> yeah, leaving that just as a, as a preface. I think this is something that we all talk about and something we should address on the podcast, because that's what we're, what we're here for. Sharing your best travel, travel tips. tips, yeah. Hmm. Well, because it's the nature of the beast with what we do is that we travel quite consistently or often, and you need to kind of streamline that whole right. process. I'm thinking of Up in the Air with George Clooney, where he mm -hmm. chooses which security line to go to based off looking at the person <laughs> oh man and that i do that scene, i do that if you see if you see these two like this old couple that you has oh. not been on a plane for the past 25 years you're not going to go behind them in a security line are you saying that you don't use express check-in premium whatever in order to avoid the old people in the first place yeah i'm, I'm not on the tsa pre-check list mm. oh okay I maybe be. i'm just uh i've global giving up that i only fly i mean i tend to i mean quite big you just dump all your you know you one thing I get surprised about when you're in the security line is that people kind of get disappointed when they come to the sort of uh, scanner and they're like, oh, I have to take off my jacket. And I was like, oh, yeah. you were just in the line for 40 minutes. What do you think Watching you're everybody Yeah, did. everyone do it. And what, you thought you were special? I mean, come on. So I, I always just essentially go uh, remove all my clothes not all my clothes <laughs> but some parts of it and then uh, try and just dump all my keys and everything in my bag and then just uh, on the bag note can I ask something that I'm always thinking about and I, I think that as a, as a professional traveler it's, a, it's a, a point of pride for how many days do you need to be away in order for it to be justified to check in luggage well the annoying thing is suits <laughs> suits are annoying and and uh, formal shoes are heavy yeah. And so, if you're going to be there for longer than three days... You check in? Mm, that's aggressive. I think a week... I, I've done an, a week away with just a carry-on. Carry-on, and then you have your suits in a, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a yeah, garment I mean, bag? In a week, where in which I only had to be in a formal attire for three days. So, I had two suits, three different shirts, and then... I think that's that is cool. some George Clooney shit, actually. That's yeah. like the optimizing the whole. Yeah, yeah, I don't think yeah, I can yeah. do that. I don't think I can. Because pack to be honest, <laughs> you checking in luggage and picking it up is is the reason why people hate flying. I know it's I the mean, worst. No, don't let's not pretend they can sort of. And climate change. <laughs> let's <laughs> not right, forget Joel, climate change. Fine. <laughs> um, but but it, it it's it's unusual that um, you know there's a lot of things you can pay for for services to. 
you know, oh, free check-in, expedited check-in, I don't know, you know, priority treatment when it comes to picking up. Flexibility, which is another thing yeah. that I had just uh, an encounter yeah. with. I hadn't thought about that because we're in London now. It's Sunday. Right. I'm going to be in Paris tomorrow and on my original uh, trip plan, which I didn't really think through, I was going to fly back tonight to Copenhagen mm. and then take another flight to Paris Monday morning and I realized I might as well just crash with Brian and mm-hmm. take the train Right. Monday morning from London to Paris, skipping the whole like going back through Copenhagen. No, if you thing. can control uh, the amount of flights you take, and yeah, better. but you can't always cancel your flight just like that because it might be expensive. And I just realized this might be obvious to you guys because you're professionals, but it's so much easier if you have the flexibility. You can pay like an extra few percent when you book, and then you can always change your flights like that. Yeah, it, it's usually custom. It is custom, and frankly, it's not. It's not a. I don't like changing flights because then a lot of things get disrupted. Um, right. I only do it if I need to. I mean, but it could be to your benefit. Say the hearing ends a day earlier, and you just you want to come home to your family. You don't want to stay an extra thirty six hours. Enough, yeah. Well, I'm the only single different. one in this room, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fu- no, but it's funny no. because I'm a, I'm of the opinion that if I have a meeting on like a Monday morning, it's that funny I'll... that you want to announce that you're single on your podcast. <laughs> so. Single. <laughs> uh, I. Uh, Find but, me on Instagram. <laughs> oh, exactly. Freaky peaky. Uh, I fly in the night before, and I'm like one of the only ones on my team who will do that because everyone needs to be with their partners uh, for an extra night. And I'm always like, fly- I like stay, I'm always the one that stays for the whole meeting. Everyone else has like a flight to catch and they need to right. like leave the meeting early. But I like to get in the night before. An extra night of hotels to pay yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You got to catch up on sleep. You got to get your stuff organized. I mean, there's a. There's maybe a spa in the hotel that you want to check right? out. There's a lot of reasons to be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, that's so. right. And on that note, how do you exercise when you're traveling? I'm starting to feel like uh, the monocle magazine, Man. <laughs> GQ man. Here, Control but. your eating, that's all. Exercise right. is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> that's maybe more of a general life philosophy yeah. as well. Oh, I know. I mean, I book a hotel with a gym, usually. That's the factor in your booking? Booking, yeah. A lot of Europeans book hotels with breakfast. Yes. Include you do? Uh, of yeah, course. I try to. Yeah, see, I don't. Yeah. Why don't you just go for go an espresso and a cigarette? Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is this? Uh, <laughs> no, but I'll definitely book it with the gym. What are your favorite airports, Joel? Well, this is good that Joel is here. My favorite airport is, is Kastrup, Copenhagen Airport. It's, it's a great is, airport. I just got to say this. I mean, Joel is Swedish and I'm Danish, and it's just great that he's defected to the proper side. Um, <laughs> although my wife is half Swedish, so uh, I make fun of her about it as well. But it's great that you, you love everything that's Denmark. I agree. I do. Copenhagen the airport's is good, though. Yeah, the exactly. Good. The airport I mean, that, is good. That, that's, that's obviously not the, 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 at the top of my priorities when I move to a new city. There are other factors at play. But the airport plays like a 5% role in the decision. Right. And in Copenhagen, you can take the metro to the airport, which is a good airport, which is like, it it feels like a Danish design kind of place. I know. That they yeah. have Spacious. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. it's a good hub, and it's yeah. very easy. Great food as well. Yeah. Is, I mean, you, I always buy my airplane food. Mm, no. Uh, we got to talk about that. But ultimately, I always, when I'm flying through Copenhagen, I just buy my food from the Copenhagen airport like Laukehusen uh, yeah oh, it's amazing <laughs> amazing pastries amazing uh, sandwiches and everything so are you a member of any airline miles programs uh, the SAS one I am are you yeah I'm true Scandinavian I'm British Airways oh god that's right actually no British Airways okay they are good yeah they are good 
but, but there are families of airlines, right? Because I, I, I'm also yeah. a member of the, One World, the, Emirates, the, the yeah. Star Alliance. Right, I try to fly so all the Star Alliance uh, right. airlines if I can. I'm a bit all over the map, though. I mean, I'm like, oh, I have a member of Star Alliance. I'm a member of Emirates. I'm there, there. Not because of, just because I can't. You but know, then you never come, you never build the miles. Status. That's the key. Because you can't do status on your own. You gotta, like, you, your work has to be flying you around. Right. Which is your favorite airport, Brian? Copenhagen is pretty good. I thought I liked Terminal 5 of Heathrow until they have this policy that you can only have one bag of liquids. They're the only right. ones. It doesn't. It's not like all your liquids need to be in a bag. You only get one bag. And so I would always get stuck. And they have this thing where it goes through security and then you know your box like goes to like the second check line if you like messed up. Right. And it takes forever. And they'll like have all these signs be like, it could delay you 30 minutes. And so right. after that, I was like, I don't like that. But now I have a pre-packaged thing that is a double of everything I have in my apartment so that I don't have to throw things in. Right. So if what? I go traveling, yeah, mm. if I go traveling, I don't have to think, oh, did I pack that lotion or something? <laughs> That's really some traveling masterclass intel right there. Travel tips. Right. That's wise. The thing though with all the London airports and many other airports, think that has nothing to do with the airports, is the location of the airports. And That's if, if it's a big enough yeah, city and they haven't like invested in, in affordable yeah. bullet trains, <laughs> it's like an hour and a half before you're in the city. I hate traveling. I mean, that's, you, you know, you pick a lot of location, pick a, you pick the airport according to uh, a lot of conveniences. One of them is how far away it is from where you're, from where your work is or where your home is. Yeah. Um, and, and London, I have to say, makes that choice very difficult because it's, it's not a good. It's not a good option. There's no good options. I mean, actually, Three London years. City Airport is not bad, yeah. but not yeah. a lot of flights fly out exactly. there, and they're also expensive. Exactly. And you still fly Ryanair, my friend Karik. <laughs> From time to time, speaking I still of fly. I still fly Ryanair. <laughs> you do really? Yeah, sometimes because actually, rookies. Bella has a family. Has a summer house uh, near outside of Stockholm. Where a Ryanair flight lands. Oh yeah. So it's only we cut we save an hour. Yeah, but um, then you have to, have to fly from somewhere, and that airport is going to be located. Yeah, ninety five miles out of the city. Well, one thing that's probably worse is when you fly with you know I don't know if EasyJet falls in this category, but I guess let's just say it does to some extent. The terminals at the airport are just further away. Like the gate is just right far right. away. Uh, they didn't get that premium. Yeah, exactly. They didn't get to, you know, they have, you have to walk. And then, you know, big signs on the floor is like, you are 40 minutes away from your <laughs> And I'm like, this is painful. And I'm just waiting. Why don't we have go-karts or something, a fast, like, car lane or something? Just get us there quicker. Right. So these things go into my choice when it comes to choosing the airline. And airport depends. And then Ryanair flies to locations that are better than they used to be. That is true. But it's so ridiculous when you're in there. It's, it's like you get on the plane, and I always book an extra seat because I, you know, it's so cramped. The seats are so cramped. But, but can you book an extra seat without paying for the full seat? Yeah, and they you make you name tickets? it. No, you pay to you buy two tickets, but they're usually so cheap. They're like fifty pounds for a right. flight. So you're like, I, I get an extra one, and your seat num- name has to be Mister Extra Seat. That's how often I've done it. Mister <laughs> Extra Seat. And you buy that, but then it's a, a commercial for like two and a half hours. It's like, and they play this song. It's like, dur, 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 dur. we're going to have a lottery. There's like sheep <laughs> cattle like coming. <laughs> it's like, we're going to have a beauty contest in aisle three. So it's like, I can't handle this. I got to work. I got to work. Yeah, there's no working. And Actually, they have that yellow, that McDonald's yellow. Oh, God. There, there's, what's worse is that you get, um, there's no point in 
paying for check-in or uh, checking your luggage. There's no point because in those types of airlines, they look at your bag like, you know, that's gonna have to get checked in. You're like, great, I didn't pay for it because they'll do it for free now. Right. Oh, true. Do they yeah, though? They do. They do. Sometimes. I would imagine Ryan I would charge you twice in that scenario. No, I mean I didn't Probably. see. Yeah, you know, maybe that's a big question. Sometimes they do charge. Sometimes they don't. Um, in all seriousness. But though, what's the point of doing it if uh, if you're not gonna pay for it? So why don't you just? Do it. How bad do you feel about flying? Do you have any? Or is it just Swedish politically? Correct? No, I don't feel bad at all. Oh, like morally? Yeah, and oh and that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like climate change wise. Yeah, yeah oh. or just like given how much we travel, and in theory, I mean, in the future, to answer your initial rhetorical question, I guess we should all be doing video conferencing way more than we are, rather than flying around the world. It's different, though. I don't think. Did I say that? I, I don't. We asked what we're going to do oh, instead. When I said we can't be flying. It's not like this. the same. If you've had meetings with people over video conferencing, and then you have meetings with them in person, it's so much more effective, and you get a lot of stuff done. I would actually advocate flying more, but you know, I'm not paying for it. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I think actually it helps to, you know, it's not that I endorse flying i endorse physical meetings and uh, if i can get there through another means of transportation that is maybe environmentally friendly then sure i mean I'm for instance i'm my first Eurostar trip tomorrow from london to really yeah. I, i'm yeah. a big fan of Eurostar. Me too. i mean i am looking I, forward to it it's really good you'll you'll be surprised how convenient it is and you know you just get more space you yeah actually stretch out and it's just no do they do security on Eurostar? of course they have security but it's um it's just not as uh, burdensome as it might be right. at the uh, airports here's a pro tip priority pass have you guys heard of that yeah but it's i don't think like priority pass with easyjet doesn't get you anything no 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 no, no not to like the priority pass is this card oh you pay once a year and then it, you get access to a lounge in each airport. Oh, that, yeah. And then every time you go to the, that lounge, you pay like 20 bucks or something. Mm. And that's how we could take a shower when we flew to Sydney and I exactly. could crash over. <laughs> uh, that was priority. That pass. was a nice airport, even though it seemed like this crazy <laughs> world. In, in Dubai. In Qatar. Qatar, that was Doha. Uh, oh, man, that was, that was a long flight. <laughs> a long time. Yeah, ago. I remember I, I met you guys the next day, I think it was. I wasn't just like yeah, at all. Exactly. Maybe it was the, yeah, yeah. the lounge. The lounge. Did. No, but that was actually I have flown a business class where the f- seats have been flat, mm. and it makes a huge difference Absolutely. when you get on. You're just awake, you're fresh, you're actually happy, and it's I just think I've never flown business class. Never, never. It's oh. a, it's quite an experience. I'm a man of limited means. Yeah, but sometimes you get like uh, randomly upgraded. Never. Not randomly, don't you have You're to be You're not like flirting enough with the gate agent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I go to the gate agent, I'm like, put me an emergency exit, that's a travel tip. Yeah, yeah. Get that emergency exit row. If they don't have that, I gotta get an aisle. Aisle or yeah, window? Aisle, window. Well, yeah. Aisle, always. Aisle. You don't want to be Joker in the middle. I mean, no, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was. Oh, you don't want to be Joker in the middle. I have long, long legs and big feet. I can't be stuck. I want to be like, yeah. stretching out in the aisle. But then you get that headrest when you want to sleep if you sleep by the window. <sighs> You can't win. No. Do you use travel pillows? I do. You do? Yeah, 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 I do. I mean, um, and I use sort of the eye mask and uh, all the... <laughs> what? I'm just picturing you with like an eye yeah, mask. Yeah, like, I don't wake up for, unless it's champagne or something. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And I have those uh, sort of Bose uh, Oh, yeah. Speakers, I just, just bought noise cancelling. Yeah, you, you really got to, as much as you can, make it as comfortable as possible because it's going to be hell. So you might as well just get comfortable. <laughs> do the best. Do the best, right. yeah. I think, Joad, that you are the first Happy Fun Time guest. Yeah. 
really? basically, which is an honor that oh, we now wow. bestow upon you because okay. you were such a good Iran US Spanish Tribunal uh, contributor. Thank yeah. you. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining us at Brian's new office. Yeah. Thank Lovely. you, Callum Agnew, for your research on this episode. And then we're done. That's, That's it. Bye. Bye. <laughs>